You are listening to a podcast from Providence Reformed Baptist Church. If you would like to listen to more of our sermons, please visit our website at providencewi.org. One thing I'm way good at is, is trashing the pronunciations of Chinese names, but I'm going with Wang Yan. Uh, Wang Yan, uh, Chinese dissident, and uh, the picture you're seeing on the screen right now, um, she was uh, a, a Christian in China in shackles, uh, partially because of things she had said about the government, uh, partially because, uh, in, in her account, because she's a Christian. But she stepped out of a, a detention center in the Liwan district uh, and this is the picture that was taken when she was out there. Her ankles and calves were covered with infected cuts because uh, there were some heavy shackles she had to wear while she was in prison. Um, at that point in time, she was suffering from uh, late-stage ovarian cancer. This was when she was 47. I believe she's 49 now. Um, and diabetes uh, as well. Police released her uh, because they didn't want her to die inside their prison. She was ultimately able to travel to Thailand to get medical treatment. But even outside mainland China, uh, Wang and her husband, for that matter, uh, faced harassment. She says uh, hackers sent viruses to her cell phones. Uh, back in China, local officials harassed her husband, ransacked their home, and tried to entice her to return. She had surgery in Thailand, and uh, after a short stay in Indonesia, booked a flight uh, back to Beijing, but made a getaway during the layover in Taiwan, and that's where she has been. Derek, I think we might be having microphone issues. If we could turn the pulpit mic on, that would be helpful. Thanks. So, so during this layover, she found a way to stay in Taiwan. I, I pointed out that she was called a former evangelist because here's, here's where this story is going to turn a little bit and, and part of the reason why I'm using it this morning. Uh, we're not, I'm, I'm not trying to make any comments about, about I any theological differences we might have with her. She is someone who, who professed faith in, a cri in Christ in a land where that was just not what you do. She has become, this is not the, the great success story that we hear where, where uh, I mean, how do we like those things to end? They, maybe they wind up in the United States or, or the, the authorities change their minds. But, but she still is under the gun. And we also like to hear stories where these believers just stay faithful. And all the words that they say, we like to quote from the pulpit. This isn't one of those stories. This isn't. She is uh, seeking uh, United States asylum, and uh, last I knew, she hadn't received that um, through our president. She's miscarried two babies uh, as a result of government beatings, she says. But she said this, quote, If you do evil in China, the government reveres you. If you do good, it suppresses and persecutes you. I believe the Chinese government has reached an all-time low. There's no way God will let Xi Jinping off for demolishing crosses and destroying churches. And then her voice quavered in this interview, according to the interviewer. 
And through tears, she said, if God lets him get away with it, I don't think I can believe in this God anymore. You say, good night. Why You're supposed to give these hero stories from the pulpit. Kind of like when the Lord Jesus was talking about John the Baptist, that there wasn't anybody greater than him. And he's the one who, while he's in prison, is saying, did I get this all wrong? Are you the promised one or not? I mean, this man who stood boldly for Jesus is frail and he is weak. So the reason I'm giving you this part of the story rather than turning this woman into the hero of the story, the Lord Jesus wasn't holding John up as a hero. He, he was holding John up as, as a, a smoldering wick, as a, a weak person that God used. And that could be this woman as well who, who had, uh, God had used her and, and she had called people to faith and people had turned to Jesus where she lived I'm bringing that up because people argue over the text that we are studying now. Over baptism, thinking that the real issue is that Peter is going on talking about preparing yourself for, for standing up strong for Jesus, being ready in every circumstance to give an answer to those who ask a reason for the hope that's within you with gentleness and reverence. That Peter is saying, it's necessary, brothers and sisters, that you're being boiled right now because God's bringing gold out. He's showing what you really are. The reason I'm doing this is because this text is, is not Peter somehow shifting and saying, so now I'm going to make a few comments on baptism. Baptism saves. There, we got that. And that, that honestly satisfies some people's theology because they say, I thought so. And when you look with, within a, a number of religious groups, some of them cultic, some of them non-cultic, will we'll pull this verse out and, and say, see, I thought so. You can't be saved unless you're baptized. And it's like as an infant into our church or uh, a lot of groups as an adult. And, and that's, that's really uh, what demonstrates that you're truly saved. Uh, my preaching plan, by the way, is to go to Galatians, and uh, we won't get far into Galatians without putting to bed any notion that salvation is Jesus plus anything. However, we also shouldn't duck difficult texts. And I have given you, in telling you the story of this woman, I have given you a tiny taste of the kind of people who are hearing this. People who are maybe being pushed to keep quiet about their faith because it can get you thrown in jail. To be quiet about your faith, even if it just means that people might laugh at you or think you're a little bit goofy or, or fanatical, and we wouldn't want to be known as that. So when Peter starts talking about the flood here, when he starts talking about baptism, we, we probably should pay attention and say, well, we've got to find out what this means, but is it possible that the context is going to help us? So I'm going to focus in on where we left off last week because I, I just couldn't with a clear conscience, since we're talking about conscience in this text, I couldn't just leave this uh, un, without commentary. He's spoken of having a good conscience or a clean conscience. And he says at the end of, we'll start at verse 20, he's talking about Noah there's, there were 120 years during the construction of the ark. There were eight persons 
who were brought safely through the water. That's an important phrase in helping us with this. Eight persons were brought safely through the water, and then the next words corresponding to that. Baptism now saves you. Uh, I think the King James is something like the like figure whereunto, which really helps, right? Uh, some Bibles have the word antitype, which is almost precisely what the Greek word is. That's where we get our word antitype. But even, even that, if I throw the word antitype out, people are saying, oh, okay, that, that doesn't really clear it up. What's, what's an antitype? So if you dig into the word he's using, because this is, this is not, there's only one other time in the New Testament that this word is used. The word actually is used of when a, a, a hammer hits an anvil, the, the response. It's like an echo or, or a, it's the response of it. We might say when, a, <laughs> some of us wouldn't say this, when a typewriter, okay, kids, there used to be these things where you'd, you'd push the button and it wasn't like something came up on a screen. There would actually be an arm that would hit a piece of paper and make an impression with ink. And they called those typewriters. And so you could actually sit down and type a letter without a printer because your paper was actually in your machine. So that's, that's the picture. Boom. Something hits. There's a reflection of that then. That's the word antitype. So an echo, uh, a response, a reflection might be another word. So corresponding to what? Corresponding to the fact that there were eight people who went through the water and now he's going to talk about baptism. Really important, okay? So, so if, if I'm saying, yeah, I'm probably going to lose everybody. People are going to fall asleep in five minutes. So what do I want them to get the most before that happens? Okay, so here it is. Get the context. To whom is this being written? So important in studying the Bible is getting context. This is the, this is the context of persecuted people. The fires are hot some of these people may be wavering. Can I really trust a God who's letting this kind of stuff into my life? So the context is these people and Peter's saying, God's got a purpose. He's at work in all of this. Don't forget that. That's the context of the whole letter. A little bit closer to where we are then in understanding this is he's been talking about a flood of judgment. That helps us understand too because what we learn about Noah's Ark all the way through the Bible we're going to study that in companion time. We're just companion study time in my class. We're going to look at Genesis chapter six and why is it there? Historic record, I believe. But why is Peter using that as an example? And and the reason I think that he's using that is because the ark is a picture of God's salvation, judgment, wrath on the outside, rescue on the inside. The only thing that stood between those saved people and the wrath was a covering. An atonement. So, here we head into discussion of baptism. By the way, uh, Hebrews 9 and verse 24 uh, says this, and I'll, I'll go there now, or I'll just read it to you quickly. Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one. But into heaven itself, for now to appear in the, in the presence of God, for us. It's, it's the word copy. In other words, the Lord Jesus having carried sins was the living tabernacle where sins, sins were carried. This, 
this picture of God's glory on earth, this big tent that was set up and the sacrifices that were made and, and the most holy place was entered by the most holy person in the most holy tribe and the most holy nation and, and would enter the presence of the Lord. And the writer of Hebrews says, that's what Jesus did. But the one on earth was, was just a copy. This is the real thing. So the flood of Noah is a copy. The the Water baptism for believers, we believe it's important, and I'll argue vigorously for that, but, but it's a copy. It's a picture of something bigger. <clears throat> the last thing we should do in studying this text is to diminish the importance of believers identifying with Christ in baptism. But we also need to resist the teaching that there is merit in that ordinance. That's not what this is teaching. Some people have isolated these words from the context and they've distorted them to teach that in order to truly be saved, you have to be baptized. I, I do think there's saving symbolism in baptism, but not what some people think. And, and I'm going to attempt to unpack this text just to demonstrate what Peter was trying to communicate. The first important detail is what we've just done is to look at that word corresponding. I don't know honestly what word is best in English to use for that corresponding to, but the idea is this. Baptism is a reflection or an echo of Noah's flood. We wouldn't say, by the way, that Noah was saved by the flood, right? Say, yeah, boy, good thing for that flood Noah and his family never would have been saved if it hadn't been for that flood. I, I just don't think that that's a legitimate way of looking at it. But we could say that Noah and his family were saved through the flood, that the flood actually buoyed them up. And there's a picture there because they are rescued in the middle of all of this violence. Here they are. Here they are rescued. The flood identified Noah with two things. And please get this. The flood identified Noah with the judgment, didn't it? I mean, he's right in the middle of it. It identified Noah with the judgment, and it identified Noah with the Redeemer. It saved him. He was saved through the flood. I'm saying in the context, I, we're not twisting the words to say this, not trying to, to talk people out of a, a plain meaning. The plain meaning of the text has to be taken in context. And to say that baptism is necessary for salvation would be such a contradiction of so many other fundamental truths in the Scripture. If you look at the ordinances, some people call them sacraments, Jesus gave two to the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. If you look at those as echoes or reflections of real things, you see their importance. You see how important it is for people to identify with the church of Jesus Christ outwardly, because we're saying we are, we're not a whole bunch of freelance Christians, redeemed individuals. We're a church. Part of a bigger thing called the church, but a part of this assembly. That's what these people were. And the ordinance of the church are for identifying with the Redeemer, not for getting redemption. I'm going to give you some examples, okay? Because again, we wouldn't say that Noah was saved by the flood, but we could say that he was saved through the flood. So let me give you some examples of some of these echoes, okay? Uh, through the scripture. How about the Passover lamb? 
What kind of salvation was brought by Israel in Egypt, slitting the throat of the lamb, draining the blood into a basin, smearing it on the doorposts and lintel, and then eating the meat of that lamb? That became a, a part of an outward rite. You say, well, you know, the blood, the blood saved them because you, if you didn't have the blood, the angel of death came into your home and killed the firstborn. But the point was, God went down to, is, to Egypt to rescue Israel, not Egyptians. And that was his provision for his people. He rescued Israel through the, that violence of that lamb. So the Passover lamb identified the Hebrews with what? The judgment, right? They put their hands on the head of that lamb. They identified with that animal just like they did with other sacrifices under Moses and Aaron. Put their head on that lamb. They slit the throat. It was like, it's him or me. And the, the blood was drained out. They put it on the doorposts and the lintels. They identified with the lamb, but weren't they identifying with the Redeemer at the same time? It's like, this is us. This is what we are. And the echo of that is what? It's the Lord's Supper. But the Lord's Supper is actually a picture of something bigger than just that animal sacrifice. I'll give you another example. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 10 talks about this. What about the divided Red Sea? When the whole nation went through that and and actually this the same place of rescue for the Hebrews was actually the destruction of the armies of Egypt what about that what do we do with that first Corinthians actually talks about the people being baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea they identified with the presence of God in their midst and the presence of God was not only rescue on one side of that pillar of fire that went through the middle, on one side was rescue, on the other side was confusion and horror and judgment. To be identified with Moses in the cloud and in the sea meant, and by the way, partaking of the manna that they got when they entered the promised land, it pictured baptism, it pictured communion. It wasn't that partaking of those things did something for you. It's like, this is what we are. When you start thinking this way and, and, and thinking, looking at the Bible as a whole and looking at these symbols, you realize then they don't become unimportant. We just realize, I'm not getting something from God by showing up on Communion Sunday or by saying, hey, could I, could I go up to the swimming pool when, when we're getting baptized or go down to the lake when we have, the, I'll have a baptismal service? Because I just want to cover all my bases and make sure that I'm saved. You've missed it. You've missed it if that's the motivation for identifying with the people of God. You're identifying both with the judgment and the Redeemer when you were baptized. So let's talk about baptism. Since that the text is heading there, it's not a stretch. The water of baptism pictures the violent death of Jesus. That's Romans chapter 6. That's why we baptize the way we do, by the way. And not only does the word baptizo mean to dip it's it's not just about the word it's saying i am identifying with the death of christ and when you read romans 6 paul's saying you guys were baptized into christ you were baptized into his death jesus died and rose and while there's no sin floating around the bottom of the lake when we have a baptismal service afterwards we are saying jesus violent death i identify with that because that's what i deserved and, and he rose from the dead, and I'm, I'm living a new life. I am his follower now. I'm identifying with the judgment, and I'm, I'm identifying with the Redeemer when I do this. 
no merit in the water. The saving was that God has set his chosen ones apart in the middle of the judgment. And I will say that again. The merit here is the merit of Jesus. He has set his chosen ones apart in the middle of the judgment. Look at the flood. Look at Egypt. Look at the rescue from Egypt. Look at time and time again. God shows himself as the deliverer. Do you understand now how, how people like this, this Chinese dissident and all of Peter's first audience and people around the world who are being persecuted now are identifying with this and saying, oh, if they really get it, they're saying, yeah. Because Jesus said, don't be surprised if they want to kill you. Don't be surprised if they hate you because they hated me first. I've identified with the suffering Savior. And so if, if I'm enduring persecution, I mean, what? how bad can it get? They could kill you. Instant heaven. Well, they can make fun of you in, in all of the, across the full spectrum of suffering for Jesus. We're going through what, what this woman is going through right now, what the martyrs of all ages went through, and what Peter is calling us to see. We have become a part of a fellowship of the suffering, and the ultimate sufferer is our king. How bad can it get? There's another detail I want to point out before we move on here. It's the salvation language that Peter used. So we ask the question, how does baptism save? So we talked about corresponding to that, and then we talked about baptism. Because baptism now saves you. Exactly what is it doing? How, how, how is this saving us? Well, we can't say that forgiveness comes from baptism any more than we can say that the waters of the flood saved Noah and his family. Again, it's about identity. So when Christ preached through Noah, and we already covered that, the, the message of Christ is even going through Noah. His believing family heard the message. I mean, those were the converts. Parents, would your kids follow you on an ark? God spoke through Moses and the family was rescued, at least physically rescued. When Christ preached through Noah, his believing family followed him into the flood and they were protected by God's ark of safety. And when the resurrected Christ preaches through his prophets today, believers head into the waters of baptism and they are protected, not because they were baptized, but as believers are protected by the covering blood of Jesus Christ, the atoning blood of Christ. So we can say, like Calvin said, baptized believers have obtained life through death. I, I'm not going to... to print this on the screen. If you, if you want this quote, I'll give it to you later. But I thought it was very interesting to, to hear from John Calvin on this matter because he, he lays out for us these words, life through death. He said, as Noah then obtained life through death when in the ark, he was enclosed not otherwise than as it were in the grave. And when the whole world perished, he was preserved together with a small family. So at this day, the death which is set forth in baptism is to us an entrance into life. Nor can salvation be hoped for except we be separated from the world. Again, Calvin was not teaching baptismal regeneration. He is saying, we come out of the world into the salvation of Christ. And what, what better way to picture that than the waters of baptism? If you look at the whole context here, 
thinking what identify, that identifying with Christ and water baptism was the start of persecution for these people. It happens here too. There are, there are believers I have worked with before who it's like, if I'm baptized as a believer, my parents will be so mad. And that's from so-called Christian traditions. That baptism becomes the start of, because they're identifying with all of these fanatics, that becomes the start of, of persecution. I remember uh, years ago when there was a, um, a significant Jewish population around us, unbelieving Jewish population, so religious people rejecting Christ, and one young man in our community, and this was before my time, but I heard the story, uh, there was a big celebration, it sounded like, going on at this home, and people said, what's going on over at the so-and-so home? And they said they're having a funeral for the son who had left and had, had become a Christian. It starts when people identify with Christ in baptism, for many folks anyway. And when you look at Peter's audience, you can see that when he talked about suffering for doing what is right, it is evidence that these people had, had identified with the Redeemer who suffered. So Noah, Noah's Ark is just the great picture here. It's perfect. It's a picture of safety on the inside, judgment on the outside, and the difference between the inside and the outside is this covering. It's, it's the atonement. He's going to elaborate on that a little bit. He says, baptism is this reflection of the flood. That's how it saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. And there are a lot of different translations. And I, I uh, filth of the flesh, some Bibles say, and some, I, I used to argue, and I think it was from the NIV. I'm not saying the NIV is a horrible translation, but I used to argue theologically. It's like, well, yeah, what Peter's saying is that it's not talking about saving you from your fleshly sins. But I, I don't think that's the context. Because baptism is a washing, that's what it was among the Jews. He's saying baptism is not about the first and foremost about getting underwater and getting dirt washed away, even though it is a, an outward washing. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. It's not simply an outward cleansing, Peter is saying. It is a Godward act. It is a public display of a changed heart. That's what water baptism is, and it's, it's been reserved in Scripture for believers. We, uh, we part company with some of our Reformed brothers and sisters because they say, well, we have to have everything parallel. And so, of course, the New Testament um, circumcision is, uh, is baptism. And I'm, I'm willing to go a little bit down that road except for this. The Old Testament saints from Abraham on uh, entered, entered the Abrahamic covenant by circumcision by being born into a family. How do we enter the new covenant? We don't enter the new covenant by, by being born into a specific home, even though there are privileges there that the Bible outlines. We enter the new covenant by faith. And so it is, it is believers who say, this is it, God has opened my eyes, has brought me to faith, and I want to publicly display my identity with Jesus. I want to publicly display that my heart has been changed. It's like communion. It, it, it symbolizes violence that saves. That word translated appeal, by the way, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
the context is important. Again, suffering for doing what is right is evidence that you've identified with, with the Redeemer who suffered. That word appeal, though, I want to talk about that briefly because it's the appeal to God of a, a good conscience. It refers to a request. And you say, well, that's what an appeal is, right? So God moved you to see your need for internal cleansing. And so we bring the word conscience in. God, God brought you to the place in your life where you said, you know, I am in trouble. That, that I deserve this wrath. That there's a wrath coming on everybody who's on the outside. And I'm an outsider. I need to be on the inside. God moved you to see your need for that clean conscience. And you appealed to Jesus who was ready to save you. That conscience, by the way, is a part of you that tells you something's not right. And for a, for a, for a sinner like you and me, who's been redeemed, there is nothing sweeter when you know how many times you sin and you can remember the shame of things you've done in your past and consequences maybe that are going on to this day. There's nothing more satisfying to an honest sinner than to have a clear conscience. And that's what Peter says. You've identified, you've been cleansed on the inside. And so we go through this washing on the outside. Yes, we do bristle, at least I do, at those who would add a, a physical act as a condition of forgiveness. Really? There was one physical act that brought about my forgiveness and it happened on a cross 2,000 years ago. We should, by the way, though, equally bristle at the idea that baptism is optional for a believer. I mean, short of the thief on the cross, short of the thief on the cross, you will find no evidence that any first century believer, at least recorded in Scripture, in the first century church, that even one remained unbaptized. And that's what makes this a matter of conscience. Jesus is alive. He has called us to repentance and faith. And because we have believed, we have entered the ark. And the water of that ceremonial washing itself hasn't saved us, but it certainly identified us with the one who called us to enter. It's kind of like with the, with the ark. What was the command of God? It wasn't, go get in the ark. It was, come. I'm here. I'm your safety. I'm your redeemer. Come. And Noah couldn't get there fast enough. Through the resurrection of Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Uh, we properly celebrate the incarnation, by the way. And I, I know there are Christians who say, that's a pagan holiday, we're celebrating a, a pagan holiday. Why, why should the devil get all the good holidays? That, I mean, is it, is it worthy of, and by the way, to say, well, we, the Bible doesn't command it. The Bible didn't command the Jews to celebrate uh, Hanukkah. And yet, John 10, the Lord Jesus is there celebrating an extra biblical holiday. Likewise, for us to be able to, to say, this is worth setting aside some time on the church calendar to realize God became a man to rescue his people from their sins. We rightly celebrate uh, what has become a pagan holiday, Easter. Uh, that one we, we do know the very close to the time and the date of the, the cross and the empty tomb. That's, a, that's worthy of celebration. So when you look at our church calendar here at Providence, those are the things we celebrate. 
but not enough is made of the Ascension. And I know on a lot of church calendars, there's Ascension Sunday, just like there's Pentecost Sunday. Peter is making a deal of this. The place where Jesus sits at this very moment is why the people of God win. Where is Jesus right now? And people say, well, he's just all around us. He's, he's in us. And we turn this into something that almost sounds like the Eastern religions. The presence of God is with his people in the person of Jesus and the person of the Holy Spirit. Yes, absolutely. But there is a position that the Lord Jesus occupies at the right hand of the Father. In fact, when Stephen was dying, having been stoned near death, he cried out, saw the Lord Jesus at that place. And actually he was standing instead of sitting, probably to welcome him home. Our Redeemer died, but right now he is at the right hand of the Father in a position of absolute authority. This is not Jesus wrestling with the devil, hoping that you pray enough so Jesus beats the devil. Uh, that, that is grave error. That is, that is great error. That's not where Jesus is. No enemy of yours is outside his realm. Do you think how comforting that could be to this woman we started off talking about today? Do you think how comforting that could be to these people who've lost everything? We really don't have much of a taste of what it's like to have nothing because of our faith. It's, it's such a rare, rare thing. There is no enemy of yours or even an enemy you can imagine who is outside his realm. Whether you're facing temptation to sin, it's like you really want this. You just, you want it. And it's just sucking you in. Whether you're facing that kind of temptation or whether you're facing imminent martyrdom and being called upon to deny the Savior. Either one would be a denial of Jesus. What do you have on, on your side? You have access to the Father. You have a high priest who not only guards you, but who is your attorney, your advocate with the Father. And from this position, our, our high priest stands as a savior and mediator. Hebrews puts it this way. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves. See, those were just types. But through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Earlier in this letter, the writer of Hebrews, talking about Jesus being our high priest, said, let us therefore go boldly to the throne of grace that we may find grace uh, to help in time of need. There are some observations on dealing with a difficult text like this, and, and so I'm going to go through it, and then we're going to apply it. Because... I am guessing that most of us are not just on the verge of losing something big because we're following Christ. But I also know that many of us have undergone and will undergone, uh, undergo the temptation to deny the faith in little incremental ways where we compromise, where in one way or another we've, we've shown shame for the gospel, contempt for the gospel by our lives or by keeping our mouths shut. So this is for you and for me. We've learned studying this text that the, the death of Christ actually did something. 
as a substitute, he didn't just put a, a sign up on the road saying, hey, you want, want some here? This is available over here. The death of Jesus actually was a rescue of his people. We've learned in this text that the work on the cross saved people in Old Testament times just like it does now. They weren't saved through sacrifice. It looked ahead to Jesus. We learned studying this text that the spirits who were once unbelievers actually heard Jesus call them to salvation. We learned that they are now kept. We learned that baptism is a New Testament picture of salvation through judgment just like the ark was. So you teach people who live in the free West how to prepare for persecution. And this is, this is my struggle in, in studying 1 Peter. And I, I've, I've got an obligation to go through uh, and teach the whole counsel of God. But, you know, it seems irrelevant to the life of believers in this kind of culture. It really does. Maybe more believable than it was a handful of years ago. But, you know, this is what Peter's doing. And this is a gift of the Holy Spirit to us now. So we have to choose between neglecting a portion of God's Word or teaching it as it is. Maybe God's preparing you for something that you'd never anticipated. And you're being equipped now to stand boldly for Him in your workplace or in school or even at your own home. And you might suffer for it. I'm going to risk sounding irrelevant here. There are some truths to claim when you're facing persecution for preaching the gospel. So take this for what it's worth. Christ himself calls sinners home through me. That's when you are facing persecution. If, we're, if we had the opportunity to visit with this woman uh, that I described, uh, Huang, uh, Huang Yan, if we had the opportunity to talk to her, as, as she's saying, I just, I don't know if it's worth it. I want to walk away. I mean, there, there are a lot of things. There are, there are people with my gifts who, who are doing really well. And they're not being persecuted. Maybe the government's right. Maybe there is no God because he certainly didn't step up and, and kill the one who is his enemy who's getting great recognition even in the United States, hobnobbing with the, with the leader of the free world. Maybe... But to go back and say, you know, Wang Lan, remember the times when you shared the gospel with, with people individually and in groups and people professed faith in Christ? What was going on there? Was that all about you and your methods? Or is this a powerful message that calls the dead to life? The sheep that belong to Jesus hear His voice when we preach the gospel. That's, that's what we learn. Christ calls sinners home through me. Christ Himself. To also say about the violence being done to me or the snubs that I'm getting, there's great purpose in this. It identifies me with the suffering Savior. It identifies me with the persecuted church of all ages. I am in good company when I suffer for my faith, even if others who profess faith are urging me to give up. Even if the people around me are like, Job's wife, curse God and die. I'm identifying with a better sort of crowd. Those who, who through the ages have suffered or even died for their faith. There is great purpose in this. I am not the first to suffer for obeying God. This is not unusual. This is not unusual at all to say my suffering is connected to the suffering of my Savior. Colossians talks about this. 
that were, were a part of the sufferings of Christ. And that doesn't mean, by the way, there's one particular denomination that teaches that, that suffering for your faith is actually a part of your redemption. And don't go there. That, that would be heretical. But it, it is saying we've become a part of, of the body of Christ and the body of Christ through the centuries has suffered because it represents the one that people hate in their hearts when they find out what he's calling them to. My suffering is connected to the suffering of my Savior because I'm a part of this bigger body. There are seven of these, by the way, so leave room if you're taking notes. I have identified with the violence needed to save me. That's what Peter's saying here, right? Kind of like Noah did. Water baptism connects me to the family of God in all ages like entering the ark connected each one of Noah's family in a fellowship of the redeemed, a fellowship of the people who were rescued through the flood. As a believer, and this is a sweet one, I have a clean conscience. God has washed me. I can, I can put, as a friend of mine said, my curly little head on a pillow at night and rest easy that my life is right with God, that I belong to Him, that no matter what happens between now and the time that alarm goes off in the morning, I am His. And finally, what we've learned at the end of this chapter is my Redeemer sits in the best place to give me victory right now. This isn't about being a winner and like being financially prosperous or anything. This is like being more than a conqueror through the one who loved you. To be persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor anything else in all creation is able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, you can go through anything if you grab onto this kind of identity. To step into this role where God is using you in, in this way brings you to the place where you say, I will follow you, Lord Jesus, anywhere. Just, just go with me. Uh, take me anywhere, but please go with me. I'll, I'll be there. And he leads us. The words uh, of the Lord Jesus, and I didn't put this in my notes, but from John chapter 10, when he talked about calling his sheep by name, he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. Think about how many of those sheep would walk through the fires of persecution and martyrdom. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one, the Lord Jesus said.